Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080, Light 100.5 WRCH, and 96.5 TIC. Our guests this morning are from the Connecticut State Department of Education. We have Carrie Sullivan and also Ajit Gopalakrishnan with us. Carrie, good morning, and welcome to Face Connecticut. Good morning, Morgan. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us, and Ajit as well. Thank you for coming on. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to talk about, in the next few minutes here, about the report that came out last month as we were getting ready to start the new school year. Of course, we're looking back on achievements made in the previous school year, specifically talking about the 2022 to 2023 Attendance and Student Assessment Data Report. And I think that we should start talking about absenteeism, which has seen a slight improvement, but an improvement nonetheless. And I think Carrie is the person that can speak best to that, or at least get us started with our conversation about absentee levels, which have dropped a little bit since we have started to move out of the COVID pandemic, uh, first two years of the COVID pandemic. Carrie, it has seen improvement, hasn't it? Yes, we're excited to see a chronic absence start to go in the right direction. We uh, we were seeing uh, high levels of chronic absence at the start of the pandemic that has continued for the last um, couple of years. But this year, we saw a, a trend downwards in our chronic absence uh, data to the um, uh, 18,000 less student, fewer students are missing too much school. So we're, we're excited about that, but we still have a long ways to go. I'm just wondering if you could clarify the numbers here, because I'm looking at the report and it said 20% is the current level. Is that of all students in Connecticut? So 20% of all of the students, is that how that number works? Or maybe you could explain it a little better. Well, the chronic absence rate is a measure of students who have missed 10% or more of school days in the school year, which is 18. And so 20% of the students last year missed 18 or more days of school. And that's considered chronic absence, which there is research to show that it really impacts students' ability to read by third grade or to do well in middle school or to graduate on time. I had gone back and I looked at some older numbers pre-pandemic. So, for instance, we're looking at the 2018 to 2019 report and numbers found about 10.4 percent was that rate. So we do have some work to get there. Um, It's just about more than double at the this point in time, but again, noting that decrease, correct? That's correct. That was a national trend that we've seen chronic absence more than double in both at a national and individual state levels. That's correct. 
Could you go into some of the reasons why chronic absenteeism has increased since we were in those pre-COVID days? Well, before COVID, we had high levels of chronic absence in many of our urban areas um, that was driven by poverty and um, uh, access to resources. Um, We look at chronic absence into four buckets, barriers, aversion, disengagement, and misconceptions. But one of the major barriers has been um, illness. Uh, students becoming ill more often. We have the respiratory illnesses in the in the late winter, uh, late fall, early winter. We get um, other reasons are poor transportation in some of our urban areas. Um, you know, sometimes it's just an unwelcoming school climate for students. Just making sure they feel like they're part of the community or lack of challenging or re- responsive instruction. Some students may just claim to be bored and they they don't want to come. Um, and some people think that absences are only a problem if they're unexcused, whereas chronic absence looks at all absences. So we see chronic absence means it's a missed opportunity to learn. Um, it doesn't matter if it's excused or unexcused. It just means you weren't in the classroom. And so we need to know that so that we can support students who miss too many days of school. Question for Zika Paula Christian, who is our chief performance officer. He's also joining us this morning on Face Connecticut, talking about the 2022 to 2023 school attendance and student assessment data report. I'm wondering, how did hybrid learning have an impact on absenteeism and how students are performing over the last few years? Sure. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate the question. Uh, You know, when we went remote in March of 2020, you know, when the pandemic hit, so to speak, and we were remote for the rest of that school year, and during the 2021 school year, Students had the opportunity to attend remotely. Several schools offered remote instruction as their primary method, and others offered hybrid instruction, while some came back fully in person, many throughout the year. And during that year, we started collecting data that told us how students were attending when they were in person and how students were attending when they were remote. And from those data, we were able to see that attendance was definitely weaker on the remote days. We also learned that students who were predominantly remote or even hybrid did not achieve as well through the pandemic as those who were fully in person. So clearly, uh, you know, participating remotely was, was a challenge, both from an attendance and an achievement perspective. A follow-up question I have for you, Ajit, and it just popped into my mind when you mentioned that when students were remote, it was harder to get those higher levels of attendance. And so what would you see typically happen? Was it students that were just not signing on at all to go to their class remotely? Or was it issues related to maybe internet problems or also uh, they didn't sign on at the right time? Maybe they were a little bit late. So I'm not sure exactly how you guys broke that down. I think the answer to that question is yes, (laughs) in the sense that it was all of that. Right. I mean, it was it was technology issues. It was time of day. It was support in the, uh, for the student. Um, we tried to address a lot of this uh, through significant investments in technology and Internet access during that time. We uh, distributed over one hundred and forty thousand devices, laptops, Chromebooks in a very short period of time. Um, and provided internet access, hotspots, and and cable connections 
through our uh, COVID relief dollars. Um, but it was a it was a sudden dramatic shift for the system, and uh, and you know it just it just took time to get all those devices out, getting parents and families comfortable with uh, how to use some of those devices, and and you know all the known barriers around internet connectivity. I think became very apparent during that time of year that we still continue to address address in our state. So. I don't think it was one particular reason. It was a combination of reasons. And uh, I would say in those in those times, I think we rallied around like, uh, you know, uh, like no other state, I'd like to say, and, and really did our best in trying to get, get these devices and connectivity and supports out. And uh, I know we're going to transition to LEAP, and LEAP sort of was born out of that, out of that time period in April of uh, – 2021, uh, thanks to the leadership of our governor and our commissioner. Absolutely. And I just wanted to clarify that at this point in time, here we are in fall of 2023 and starting a new school year, and we're about to get into LEAP. But I also wanted to just quickly clarify, currently remote learning is not an option in schools. Is that correct? Do you have to be there in person, or am I misunderstanding that? No, you're not generally misunderstanding it. Um we went back fully in person in 21-22, actually, um, and the legislature actually permitted, has permitted remote learning in grades 9 through 12, so long as the local district subscribes to the state standards for remote learning. And it's a sort of a remote learning program that's offered by the local school district. But few have ventured into that sort of full-scale remote learning program, especially given what we learned uh, in the pandemic. Uh, there is a provision to provide uh, remote learning even in the K-8 grades, uh, I believe starting next school year, not this school year. Uh, so there are provisions, but districts are being uh, rightly sort of cautious and, and thoughtful about how they put uh, programs like this in place and, and support their students. So uh, predominantly after the 2021 school year, students have been attending in, in person. And, you know, the irony is that when we went back fully in person in 21-22, our chronic absenteeism actually inched up to nearly 24%. Uh, and so now we're back down to 20%. So, you know, going back to school full-time took, took an adjustment for, for all of us, for the students, the families, and the system. So 22-23, uh, the year that ended last June, was the first year we saw a reduction in chronic absence. Again, still very high with 20%, meaning like one out of five students are missing 10% of their school days compared to one out of 10 before uh, the pandemic, which was, which, you know, in those days was still high. 10% was still high. Um, so, um, so I would say, you know, again, uh, we're headed in the right direction um, and we're hopeful that with our continued efforts and, and engagement with our schools and our families that uh, we will continue to improve. LEAP, which is the Learner Engagement and Attendance Program. And I think that we're going to start shifting our conversation now to talking about how we fix that attendance problem. And LEAP is definitely part of that. Could you talk a little bit more about LEAP, what it is, what it means, and generally what it does? And we'll keep digging into it. Ajit's comments previously about getting all of the devices out and hotspots out and everyone connected, but we still weren't seeing the improvements in attendance, even remote connection. And we realized there's 
through conversations and surveys with superintendents and others is that we needed boots on the ground. We needed people to engage families out in the neighborhoods, in the communities where they were. They'd been isolated. People were in fear of COVID. And so LEAP was born. Um, it is our it's the Learner Engagement Attendance Program. It's uh, a research-based relational home visit model, and it is proven to, uh, to increase attendance and family engagement. So it wasn't developed. It was developed um, in over the winter of 2021 with the governor and state and national partners in response to these very high levels of absence during the pandemic. We have 14 districts that are currently funded. And these are pairs of home visitors that they call and make appointments with families to go and to visit them and to see how they can help them with anything that's going on. This isn't um, a truancy program. This isn't going out there and lecturing them on attendance. It is, um, before we talk about attendance grades or behavior, I like to say, we say, how are you and how can we help? We have a LEAP 101 training for home visitors that we offer. And the 14 currently funded, uh, grant-funded programs have all been trained in LEAP, and we continue to train their home visitors. But we're also training home visitors from across Connecticut and other states um, in LEAP 101. We've trained over 1,700 home visitors and probably in about over 50 districts in Connecticut. So LEAP home visits are data-informed. They're tiered two, which means they're visiting those students who are missing between who are chronically absent, 10 to 19% um, miss days of school. We're not, it's, so we call it tier two because tier three students are generally those students who need a higher level of support with an outside agency. So these are voluntary, they're scheduled. Um, we don't just show up and knock on the doors. We learned quickly that that does not work. We go there to learn from the family and they're ongoing. It's a multi-visit model where you don't just go once and knock on the door and they never see you again because we were there's a clear purpose for building trusting relationships with families to help them feel more comfortable and um, part of a community um, with their school and their school district. Ajika Paulakrishnan is also one of our guests this morning on Face Connecticut, Chief Performance Officer with the State Department of Education. And I think this is a good question for him. What are we seeing with the performance levels in schools in the last few years? We did see a decline in performance in math and sciences as well as English language arts, but now we're seeing some improvements that are starting, particularly with math and sciences. That is correct, Morgan. Uh, we are seeing this past year, we saw some improvements in math and science achievement. Uh, the extent of improvement was slightly larger in mathematics, a uh, little less uh, less so in science, but still not back to pre-pandemic levels. And that's important to mention really in all three of our subject areas. And I'm going to rope in English language arts in here as well to say that in all three areas, our achievement uh, is not back to pre-pandemic levels, which basically means we have a lot of work to do uh, in these areas. We know what works to accelerate achievement. And I want to and I want to be clear about that. Uh, you know, if and and we I'm so glad we started with attendance because if students are not there, then the learning cannot happen as effectively. And we have seen that with the pandemic and remote learning, so we really wanted students to be back in school so that the learning can happen. Now, 20% chronic absence is extremely high. Okay, let me be clear. We're celebrating the fact that we're headed in the right direction, but we're still extremely high. So uh, 
So, you know, it is at some level uh, uh, not surprising, not acceptable that we are still not back to pre-pandemic levels. But I would contend that had we not made all the investments that we have made, the situation potentially could have been even worse than what it is today. So I think I commend all the efforts that have happened so far, and but we still have a lot of work to do. But we know the kinds of things that work. We know that you know, providing students with coordinated supports um, for not just their academic supports, but also their overall well-being and feeling like belonging in the school, some of the things that Kari mentioned, is important. Having curriculum that's rigorous, that's aligned to the standards, and ensuring that that's implemented with fidelity in each and every classroom, that's important. Not over-testing our students with all sorts of assessments, because we know from some of our state assessments already where students are. The assessments that we use during the year need to be more fine-grained, small-scale that actually help teachers support instruction. We know that's important. We know that we need to provide professional learning for our teachers. Yes, we've always known that. But, you know, we also know that including our paraeducators in that support is essential because oftentimes, guess what? It's our paraeducators who are providing that intervention support or that remediation support for some of our most uh, vulnerable student groups. So uh, we know that's key. We know that using data is important, but it's not just focusing on the state data. The state data is just giving you at a high level, right track, wrong track information, right? We need to focus on the little data. It's tracking this attendance, for example, on a weekly basis. You know, did, was the kid there all five days last week? And on a monthly basis, you know, how are we trending chronic absence on a monthly basis? This is why we started tracking it right when the pandemic hit. Um, and, and we see now many, many more districts doing that as part of their regular attendance teams and, and their regular work. You know, and ultimately, if you talk to any district out there, one of the things they'll talk about is coherence. And this coherence basically just means that we're all rowing in the same direction. Everyone is clear what their responsibilities are. What are the goals we're trying to achieve? And are we all rowing in the same direction? When you have those things lined up, we have seen evidence and we continue to see evidence of schools that are bucking the trend, districts that are bucking the trend and able to show improvements significantly better than the state as a whole. So it, it is not, I mean, schools and districts are complex organizations with a lot of people uh, and learning is not, uh, you know, it, is a human endeavor where you're, you're sort of working with students and trying to engage them in the learning. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not a widget making factory, right? I mean, it, it is a, about personalizing that experience for the student, relating to the student, connecting with the student, and then engaging them in challenging and rigorous instruction. So it, it's a complex endeavor, but we have seen numerous examples of our schools actually do that, and we continue to learn from them and share that with others. You had mentioned testing, and this is one question I was hoping to get to, and it might be one of our last questions for the day today. Ajit, how has standardized testing changed from the pre-COVID days to now? I mean, it's been over 10 years since I personally was in the high school system, and I remember a lot of learning geared toward those standardized tests that we used to have to take, but they were changing even at that time. I'm assuming they've changed quite a bit in the last few years. Could you get us up to speed on that? We adopted as a state new standards starting in 2010. And ever since the adoption of those standards, we introduced new assessments in 2015. 
And the assessments really haven't changed pre-pandemic to post-pandemic, but our, our newer set of assessments are not stuff that you can prepare for in the traditional sense, you know, test prep in that you know that the questions, what types of questions are going to come at what point in the test. So you drill and, and you know, prepare for that particular type of question in that particular type of test. That's not how our tests are built. It's really important for instruction to really adhere to the standards and teachers to actually not spend time preparing for, for our state assessments. In fact, the richer the engagement and the learning and the curriculum and the instruction that you provide, the more likely it is that the student is going to be able to use that knowledge, adapt to what information is presented in the assessment. And it's not just multiple choice. It's there are multi-select items that are write-in responses. There are lots of different types of uh, uh, questions that are presented to students, test questions, and different types of responses expected from them. Um, so our goal is to really help districts minimize the testing that they do locally in their schools over and above the state testing, because we want to make sure that those types of testing don't necessarily have to be always standardized. They can be non-standardized assessments that support instruction. The last thing I'll say on this point is that in the olden days, and maybe Morgan, when you were in school, you know, the state pretty much provided the sort of the state end of year test and not much else. That world is different today. We not only provide the end of year test, we also provide resources throughout the year to support instruction and really these short assessments that teachers can use throughout the year to gauge how their teaching is going and whether students are getting it, uh, sort of unit by unit, not necessarily sort of one big test uh, that you take at the end of the year. So our system of assessments is not just the end of year assessment, but really a tool set uh, that is really designed to support teaching and learning throughout the year. So we have to obviously do the state assessments as they're required in state law and federal law. We want to make sure those state assessments are short and to the point, but we also want to make sure we help districts reduce other standardized assessments that they may be giving in their schools uh, and really repurpose that time to using assessments that support instruction. And we're here to help our schools and our teachers to, to make that transition. Azika Palakrishnan and Carrie Sullivan from the State Department of Education, and obviously much more that we could talk about on the topic, but do you guys have any final comments? Well, Morgan, I'll just say we didn't get into this, but I absolutely have to mention the uh, effectiveness of the LEAP program, just getting back to LEAP for a second. Uh, we conducted a rigorous evaluation of LEAP with external researchers from our great state, from faculty, from uh, University of Connecticut, from Wesleyan, from Central Connecticut. We had a team of faculty through our research collaborative. And what we learned, I mean, many of the things that Kari talked about, we learned from that evaluation. But quantitatively, what we learned is that six months after the initial home visit among our middle and high school grade students, we saw a 20 percentage point increase in attendance. So it is a substantial effect. So I just want to underscore that, um, that the LEAP model, the, the, the nature of that home visit work, works, and I'm thrilled that we're expanding that home visiting model to lots of other districts that may not necessarily get grant funding particularly to do this, but can learn sort of that method and that way and, and apply that supportive home visit model 
uh, in their district. So, so I just needed to put a plug in there for that. All right. Thank you guys for joining me. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.